Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Rabbi Yomi Azikaway, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, Rabbi Yomi Azikaway. Uh, today is Sunday, April 10th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. So we want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, uh, to another edition of our program, this special edition of the Pan-African Journal. Later on, we'll be bringing you our Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the parliamentary ouster of Pakistan Prime Minister Imran Khan uh, through a no-confidence vote earlier today. The fighting in Ukraine is continuing between the Russian armed forces and Western-backed military units. Ethiopians and Eritreans are scheduled to hold uh, mass demonstrations in California against the recently passed congressional bills to impose sanctions on the Horn of Africa state. And the military regime in Guinea has uh, once again called upon the bauxite mining firms to build refineries inside the West African state. In the second hour, we examine uh, events in Somalia and the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, related to peacekeeping and regional economic integration. Finally, uh, we pay tribute to the 29th anniversary of the assassination of South African Communist Party and African National Congress leader, Chris Hani. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
Donne ton sabre de guerre aux femmes qui t'indiqueront le chemin de l'honneur. Si tu ne peux exprimer courageusement tes pensées, tu donnes la parole au griot. Oh, Pama, le peuple te fait confiance. Il te fait confiance parce que tu incarnes ses vertus. Tu 
capitale de l'armée, intelligent, intrépide cavalier, que me vraiment mon frère cadet dirigeait l'armée.
Khan's successor is to be elected and sworn in by Parliament tomorrow. The leading contender is Shabazz Sharif, a brother of disgraced former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif. Shabazz Sharif heads the largest party in a diverse alliance of opposition factions that span the spectrum from the left to radically religious. Khan's nominee for Prime Minister will be his Foreign Minister Shah Mahmood Qureshi. In an interview on a local television channel, Qureshi said that the party was still debating whether its lawmaker will resign from Parliament after the Prime Minister's vote is taken. Khan's ouster uh, comes amid his cooling relations uh, with the powerful military and an economy of struggling with high inflation and a plummeting Pakistani rupee. The opposition has charged uh, Khan's government with economic mismanagement. Khan has claimed the U.S. worked behind the scenes to bring him down, purportedly because of Washington's displeasure over his independent foreign policy choices, which often favor China and Russia. He has occasionally defied America and stridently criticized America's post-9-11 war on terror. Khan said America was deeply disturbed by his visit to Russia and his meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin on February the 24th, the start of the war in Ukraine. The U.S. State Department has denied his allegations. And uh, another news uh, taking place uh, in Ukraine, according to the TASS news agency based in Russia, Kiev, the capital, is plotting uh, with the West support provocations with massacres of civilian and the Lugansk People's Republic to place the blame for it on the Russian army. Uh, Mikhail Nizenzev, uh, chief of the Russia's National Defense Management Center, said this uh, earlier today. Official Kiev, with the support from several Western countries, continues to plan barbarous and ruthless actions with mass killings of civilians in the Lugansk People's Republic to later accuse the Russian armed forces and the LPR troops, he said. To uh, Ms. Zemev, <clears throat> a provocation is planned uh, in the Rogovka community in the Kiev region. The Ukrainian side, in his words, is plotting to shoot a fake video about searches of places of mass burrows of civilians allegedly killed by Russian troops. A team of Russian forensic experts and police officers will be involved in the provocation to make it look more trustworthy. Reporters from foreign mass media outlets have arrived in the city of Kremenaya uh, in the Severodonetsk district and have accommodated in the building uh, of the local hospital. They are supposed to record the Ukrainian army's provocation with the alleged selling of ambulance cars carrying patients by Russian troops, he said. Apart from that, he said that uh, Ukrainian nationalists have minded reservoirs with chlorine at a water utility in the Pamyasnaya district and planned to blow them up when forces of the Lugansk People's Republic approached the city. Are you listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal? In the United States, uh, a group called Eritrea Viva uh, posted in its Twitter page that Ethiopians and Eritreans have finalized preparations to hold a rally in California against the House Bill 6600 and Senate Bill 3199. The rally would target a calling on U.S. Congressman Brad Sherman in California to unseat the bill since the sanctions are dangerous 
uh, to and also threatened to severely damage the people of Ethiopia. The rally will be held on April the 11th uh, in California and its environs to urge the Congress uh, to stand for peace in Ethiopia and Eritrea, rejecting the bills. Congressman Brad Sherman represents California's San Fernando Valley and currently a senior member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, as well as a senior member of the House Financial Services Committee. The rally will be held by Ethiopians and Eritreans, along with friends of Ethiopia and Eritrea, with a view to opposing uh, the two bills deliberately formulated against Ethiopia's transformation and its people's well-being. Eritrean Viva added, Ethiopians, Eritreans, and their friends uh, should never uh, be silent. Furthermore, uh, the crumb of TPLF gangs is composed of ethno-Nazi criminals supported by the free and democratic world, in quotes. The U.S. and the European Union must stop popping up such criminals and cruel groups. Break the silence. Hashtag no more. Ethiopian Eritrea prevail. Uh, the statement underscored. And uh, finally, uh, in uh, the West African state of Guinea, uh, the military regime inside the country has once again uh, called for the mining countries to establish refineries inside uh, Guinea. Now, the ruling uh, military council has given foreign companies until the end of next month to submit proposals and a timetable for the construction of bauxite refineries. Uh, Colonel Mamadi Dumbaya, uh, in a meeting with stakeholders in Conakry, the capital, asked that the Industrialists ensure this was done before the end of May and that all raw materials used in manufacturing processes be produced locally. Despite the mining boom in the bauxite sector, we have to admit that the expected revenues are below expectations, and you and we cannot continue this game of fools that perpetuates great inequality in our relations, Colonel Dumbaya said. The junta had also warned that foreign companies that violate the refinery construction deadlines will be penalized. With an estimated 7.4 billion tons, Guinea has the world's largest reservoir of bauxite, a mineral used in the manufacture of aluminum, which is essential for the automotive and food industries. It is also the second largest producer in the world. China imports about half of its bauxite needs uh, from Guinea. However, the benefits to Guinea from bauxite mining and other abundant natural resources such as iron, gold, and diamonds are notoriously disproportionate. Experts cite insufficient investment, lack of essential infrastructure such as roads, and rampant corruption as factors that have uh, hindered growth. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. In concluding uh, this segment, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed uh, to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people uh, throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world, the Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most 
pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website, and uh, that is at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access to today's program, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast, a special edition of our program, uh, just go uh, to uh, the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash uh, Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program. Right now, we want to go into a report on the current uh, security situation in the Horn of Africa state of Somalia. Let's listen in.
This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. On the 31st of March, the UN Security Council voted unanimously to endorse the African Union's new peacekeeping mission in Somalia. The new mission will be known as the African Union Transitional Mission in Somalia, or ASMIT, and replaces the African Union Mission in Somalia, AMISOM. Under the UN resolution, the new mission is projected to gradually decrease staffing levels in Somalia from nearly 20,000 soldiers, police and civilians to zero by the end of 2024. However, after over a decade in Somalia, Amisom has faced repeated challenges in executing its mandate. The question now is, how will the new peacekeeping mission be effective where Amisom has failed? I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. While the new AU transitional mission in Somalia is also authorized to take action against Al-Qaeda and Islamic State extremist groups and conduct a phased handover of security responsibilities to Somalia's government. Before we begin our discussion, my colleague Mohamed Kahir looks at how the African Union and United Nations intend to implement ATMIS. The Somali armed forces are expected to take over their security responsibilities from the new mission within two years. Somalia's defense minister says that, despite the challenges, Amisom presence helped his government fight against threats of terrorism. Amisom operations helped the Somali government fight against terrorism. Together with Somali armed forces, they liberated suites of key areas from the terrorist groups. Various countries sent us their troops in the fight against terrorism, and they continue to do so. The quality and capacity of Somali's security apparatus is improving day by day, too. ATMIS is expected to transfer the security responsibilities to Somali security agencies within a period of two years, and we are working on that schedule of withdrawal. We are expecting the draft to be submitted to the African Union and the UN Security Council for mandate approval. Somali security agencies are expected to take a lead role ahead of withdrawal of ATMIS. Somalia has commenced the revision of the Somalia Transition Plan to ensure that our vision, strategic objectives and priorities are aligned with the transnational uh, nature of the threats that we face today. The revised Somali Transition Plan, along with the joint CONOPS, paves the way for the Somali security forces to lead more offensive operations built around agile, mobile and resilient forces. Amisom was deployed in Somalia in 2007 to help by then weak government. Fifteen years down the line, much has been achieved in terms of securing the country. The threats coming from armed global Shabaab still remains the biggest concern. Mohamed Kahi, CGTN, Mogadishu, Somalia. Well, joining me now to look closer at peace in Somalia and the implementation of the African Union transitional mission in Somalia are from London, David Otto Endele, Director on Security for the Horn of Africa Institute for Peace and Security Governance. In Pretoria, Meressa Desu, Senior Researcher and Training Coordinator at the Institute for Security Studies. 
and in Nairobi, Abdi Ante, former advisor to President Formajo and co-founder of the Heritage Institute. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us on the program. David, if I may start off with you, because the UN Security Council has voted to replace uh, the AU mission in Somalia, AMISM, uh, with the AU transitional mission in Somalia, ASMIS. First of all, what is the rationale behind the UN Security Council's uh, decision? Thank you for having me. Uh, simply put, um, uh, you know, the, the expectation is that uh, Amisin, you know, is closing its doors in, in Somalia. But of course, uh, the, the mission of Amisin was to, uh, you know, bring stability and peace in, in Somalia, and that has not happened. So it's very difficult and quite um, a difficult position for the United Nations Security Council to uh, then just allow Amisin to close its shop. And therefore, they came up. Um, you know, with this uh, intermediary, uh, which is almost like an interim, um, you know, uh, force, you know, but, you know, claiming that, of course, you know, it will be uh, championed by uh, the Somalians themselves. You know, I hope that happens. Um, but, you know, this is just the uh, strategic announcement. You know, this um, kind of, you know, changes uh, take a long time. You know, you've got to think about uh, issues of transition, handover, you know, um, transparency in terms of how a mission has been run and how this new uh, mission is going to be run. So there are several complications to that. Right. Uh, but I think, right. you know, this is much more of a safe phase, you know, for a mission itself. Right. Uh, Abdi, let me get your view here. I mean, it, this mission of Amisom was to bring uh, stability to uh, Somalia. Is it also your assertion that it has failed? It hasn't done that? You know, Amisom has a mixed record. It's been around for 15 years. Uh, there is no doubt that they have contributed significantly to the peace and security in Somalia over the past 15 years in different parts of the country, but also in different ways. They have actually been a major enabling force for the government to operate across the country given uh, how the government was uh, uh, nascent and weak and so on. But I think, uh, on the other hand, um, a lot of questions are being raised about um, Amisom and its mission, um, what appears like an open-ended mission. It's been around for 15 years. Um, you know, substantial amount of money is going into it. And, uh, and in fact, even though they have contributed substantially to degrading the capability of the militant group al-Shabaab, they have not been able to defeat um, that group at all. And in fact, um, the, the fact that they've been around too long and right. have not been able to defeat al-Shabaab is creating problems within the Somali public as well. Marissa, what's your view? Uh, Amisom, I think they contribute a lot. Uh, number one, uh, they uh, establish, at least re-establish the security apparatus in Somalia. Right. At least by now, uh, there is a federal and state forces, and the police, the military, uh, though they need more strings, but uh, I think that is one of the achievements that Amisom has. Uh, the other thing is also they created uh, a space for political space establish you know the civil administration as well federal state administrations and also to some extent they try to to limit uh, the expansion of al-shabaab and other militant groups as well so uh, there is uh, achievement but I, I agree with the with the first speaker with abdi that uh, amisom has been there for uh, 15 years so comparing the, the rings of time that they were so uh, maybe uh, there is a need for the change, that, that, that is why 
the Artemis is also calm. So right. that is so, my contribution. Thank you. Right. Uh, David, let me come back to you, though, here, because there, there is this uh, feeling as well that 15 years down the line, you know, Amitsom, uh, you know, did not manage to completely defeat Al-Shabaab. Security remains the key focus in Somalia. So what exactly has changed with the new transitional mandate of, of Atmis? How will Atmis differ fundamentally from Amisom? I think, first of all, I hope that uh, Atmis will be championed by uh, Somalians themselves exclusively. Amisom's mission, you know, was um, very clear as well. It was to bring peace and stability. And, uh, uh, you know, that mission has not been achieved. I mean, I don't think Atmisom's... Uh, mission was to try and bring peace. You know, it was very stated very clearly that, you know, peace and stability will be the outcome. And um, as uh, my colleague, um, co-panelist Abdi mentioned, you know, they've been there for over uh, a decade, for almost 15 years. And if you want to balance in terms of, you know, the amount of resources and money that has been spent on Amazon, um, if that amount of time and resources was channeled, uh, to uh, establish, um, you know, the governance and the peace in, in Somalia. I think what we would have seen, um, you know, within that 15-year period, would, would have seen some kind of an establishment uh, of stability in Somalia. But let us be very clear that Amisom is not just the only player um, in, in Somalia. So we have to take into consideration right. that, um, you know, they, they've got other players within uh, Somalia, which means Amisom did not have um, the, the full... Um, you know, playground, so to speak, you know, to bring back peace and stability. But as far as Amazon's uh, mission was concerned, um, I would think that they would look back and, you know, um, you know see very huge room um, for, um, you know, kind of lessons to be learned. And I hope that, you know, the new mission uh, will take that into consideration. Right. But I want to see uh, Somalia taking responsibility for its own security. It may take time. Uh, but that was, that's what you need for Ab an independent and sovereign state. Abdi, you're on the ground. You've been on the ground in, in Somalia as all this is unfolding. You know, I want to find out from you exactly why the outcome that was set out for Amisom was not achieved. You yourself have said, uh, you know, that Amisom, you know, degraded Al-Shabaab but did not defeat it. Why? Well, when we talk about Amisom, uh, there are three main factors we have to look into. The most important factor is the political um, space in the country. At the end of the day, as David said, it is uh, up to us Somalis to fix our country. It's not up to Amisom or anyone else for that matter. And the fact of the matter is that our political elite have generally um, uh, failed to really bring about a broad political consensus, which would have given Amisom the underpinning they needed to um, really create more space. But that's one major problem. The second major problem is an internal Amazon problem. Uh, keep in mind, Amazon is comprised of neighboring countries, Kenya, Ethiopia, Djibouti. Those three countries have a direct border with Somalia. And two of those countries, Kenya and Ethiopia, have had historical problems with Somalia and continue to have a, a pernicious, in my view, pernicious uh, role in Somalia. So their involvement actually um, creates a, a problem of resistance um, on the part of the Somali people. The third problem is the funding problem. Donors are uh, fundamentally fatigued about, about Amisom. They've been pouring money into it for 15 years and are not seeing results. So much like Afghanistan, what you see is a, a European Union and Americans mainly who are saying, well, we've poured so much money, we could have actually used that resources to rebuild the Somali National Army if the Somali political elite were to put their act together. Right. So, 
taken together, those factors are, in my view, inhibiting Amislam to achieve its, its stated objective. Do you see, um, you know, Atmis uh, being given the leeway to make change here? In my view, Atmis is an attempt to recast Amislam in a different light, in a new light, so to speak. And Atmis was born out of a, of a tremendous amount of pressure by the donors, but also by the Somali government, which drafted a document called the Somali Transitional Plan, which outlines how the Somali government aims to um, secure the country. The problem with Atmis, though, is the same problems I've described earlier, but in addition, now Atmis has a, an expiry date. They have a 30-month window, you know, less than three years, effectively, to try to achieve their objective and withdraw from the country. Now, the only caveat to that is that we are now in the middle of elections in Somalia, and should a new leadership is elected in the coming weeks, that new leadership could fundamentally renegotiate the entire terms of, the, of Atmis, and we could see Atmis staying in the country for in, an indefinite period of time, or a, a much expedited withdrawal. Mind you, if Amisom or Atmis or whatever you want to call it, they withdraw from Somalia today, it's almost certain that Al-Shabaab will recapture most major cities in the country. Unfortunately, because of our security uh, forces have been reoriented for political reasons over the past few years. Marissa, let me wrap you in here and, and get your view on what Abdi has just mentioned. If Atmis or, or Amisom were to withdraw uh, from Somalia, Al-Shabaab uh, might overrun uh, the country. I mean, what are you, what's your thoughts on all of this? I, I think uh, a little bit to, uh, to uh, differ on the view that uh, uh, Somalia was not given the, the, the opportunity to administer themselves. I would differ uh, slightly that uh, Amisom was really supporting the political apparatus of Somalia to establish administer Somalia. The Amisom is basically it's a military support. Uh, and the problem that I should be underlined is uh, Somalia, I mean, the, the Amisom had not the, the right uh, mandate to support political processes. That is the, the problem that I see. Uh, otherwise, uh, the, administ the civil administration was uh, on, some, on Somalia. So uh, Amisom was not the one who administered Somalia anyway. Uh, but uh, coming to, you, to, to your point, to the question, if Amisom withdrew, then what will happen? Um, it, it definitely, uh, it, it is open for, for, for Al-Shabaab to, to, to control uh, Somalia. Uh, even with the support of um, uh, Amisom, uh, Al-Shabaab controls um, many parts of southern and uh, southwest of Somalia. And then uh, this is committing uh, attacks, including the capital city. Uh, we can see uh, from, from January the incidents that happened. That is the progress in that data that we are observing. Also in terms of capacities, financial capacities, Al-Shabaab is better collecting uh, taxes and monies and then buying weaponries for, for war. Right. So um, Al-Shabaab is getting strength, but with the support of Amisom, still the Somalia government could not be able to defeat Al-Shabaab. But I agree with Abdi, the, the responsibility to... Uh, the main responsibility or primary responsibility for Somalia to defeat Al-Shabaab is, is the Somalia, it's not Amisom. Amisom is supporting the uh, Somalia government. All right, uh, gentlemen, we're going to take a break now. And when we return, we'll have more on some of the long-term goals of the peacekeeping mission in uh, Somalia. To stay with us. <laughs> Africa, 
Welcome back to Talk Africa. Well, still with me on the program, David Otto Endele, Meresa Desu, and Abdi Ainte. Well, before the break, we looked at some of the achievements and challenges for Amisom in Somalia. Let's now take a closer look at some of the long-term goals of the new peacekeeping mission. Abdi, let me start off with you here, because before we went to the break, we talked about um, Al-Shabaab, um, you know, perhaps overrunning Somalia in the event that there is no peacekeeping force here. We want to hear from you, though. Why has al-Shabaab remained so resilient? Well, a number of factors. I, I think the first one is the, uh, I would say, the failure of the political elite and overall political process of the country. If that went as well as we were all hoping for, I, I think we would have seen a, a different result. In other words, um, the... Um, the, the political elite are not um, gaining the trust of the public as much as they should have been, and that's a big problem. The second um, issue is they're controlling vast swathes of, of territory. So that's another uh, major factor. And thirdly, um, as someone said earlier, in the last few years, they've gotten a lot better in collecting a tremendous amount of money to run their operations. So I think when you take these factors together, um, the, the group has become a lot more resilient and a lot more durable. Uh, David, let's take a step back here and look at that non-weaponized solutions to, uh, you know, Somalia's stability. Because Amisom, you know, has made some inroads but hasn't completely uh, taken control of the security situation. Who needs to sit at the table if a solution was to be found? Well, I, I think, uh, as always, um, you know, what one would expect is to see... Uh, um, you know, a collective and collaborative, um, you know, community of Somalians uh, sitting on the table um, and ironing out uh, the, their various uh, differences. I think what is very clear here is that there is this uh, a psychological um, dependency narrative, uh, you know, which often is pushed by, uh, you know, terrorist groups like Al-Shabaab. And, you know, of course, you know, this is also... Uh, benefits um, uh, missions like Amisom. You know, they say if we leave Somalia, uh, then of course Al Shabaab is going to take over the government. Uh, therefore, we should stay. Um, but but then you know th there is still insecurity uh, in spite of you know Amisom being there for the past 15 years. Uh, the question again becomes um, when do we have stability in the presence of, of Amisom and what is the cost? Um, of Amisom's presence uh, in Somalia, as opposed to, um, you know, empowering and giving governance and also making sure that you don't have ungoverned spaces by um, increasing the capacity of uh, the Somalian security forces. And, of course, you know, winning the hearts and minds of the local people um, by bringing in, um, you know, uh, programs that will prevent young people from seeing Al-Shabaab as the better alternative. Right. Uh, Marissa, let me hear your thoughts here, because ATMIS's success and exit will rely on the military handover of responsibilities to an effective Somali national 
army and withdrawing from Somalia in about uh, two years, in 2024. So what would need to change to achieve this and stabilize Somalia? I think what, is, what has changed in, uh, in, uh, in ATMIS is almost three factors. It's not in terms of uh, fundamental mandate change, but it is uh, more uh, on uh, modalities of operations. It is, as it was uh, mentioned, it is a transition with a, a time frame, exit time frame. So from uh, December, coming December towards the end of this year, the mission will start uh, reducing of its forces by 2,000, according to the mandate now given to the, to the ATMIS. So in nine months, again, they will, they will reduce uh, their forces. So reducing the forces, meaning it is, I mean, the, the, the mission is on exit mode. Right. If it was supposed to change, uh, the mission could have more robust uh, uh, interventions or support on the political processes, reconciliations. Uh, you know, that is, uh, for me, uh, my observation is basically uh, the political is the, 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 the problem in Somalia. So the, the, the support should be on the political processes. Uh, equally on, uh, on fighting al-Shabaab, equally the, the support for in the political process could have been there, but unfortunately in the mandate, it is not the priority of the mandate. The mandate is now, is fi as fighting Al-Shabaab, it is to reduce forces and exit by uh, 2023, end of 2023. Right, uh, Abdi, would you say the military approach to solving Somalia situations um, has succeeded? I think it's a mixed record. Um, over the past 15 years, uh, the, the militants group has been degraded. Their capability is not as strong as it used to be, for sure. Um, and they certainly do not control as large of a territory as they did in 2008. However, um, there is no doubt that we need to complement the military solution with a political solution. Um, uh, but when do you start that uh, you know, political solution or what some people would call a reconciliation? Uh, the timing is important here. At the moment, the Somali government cannot only use carrots. It would have to also be able to use a lot of sticks first and, and to really um, uh, inflict a lot of pain on al-Shabaab for them to be able to come to the negotiating table, perhaps then to discuss elements of a broader um, settlement and to meet some of their key demands. So we already have the ingredients for a broader settlement. I, I think anything short of, of a meaningful discussion around those issues, right. specifically you have carrots and sticks, uh, I think would be uh, uh, too quick at the moment. Okay, David, let me get your, your views here. If the Somalis, uh, you know, say that they have the, the, the ingredients for a broader settlement, why is it that they are not taking the, the, you know, the front seat in solving their own problems? I think the primary observation is that there is a huge division uh, in Somalia in terms of, you know, uh, um, you know, I mean, not just social, uh, but also more so political division. Uh, this... Uh, uh, clans, uh, society, which, you know, uh, you know people favor, uh, full of favoritism. Uh, there is a huge level of corruption. Uh, but, but also, I think, um, uh, you know, th there is also a, a huge amount of pressure, uh, which, um, you know, uh, the, uh, the uh, what you call the elite, you know, um, are experiencing from the hands of groups like Al-Shabaab, you know, in terms of compliance. Um, but as, as long as we don't see... Um, you know, that, that level of coordination and internal 
collaboration and the political will to bring stability in in, in Somalia, um, we would always you know find these gaps. Uh, these gaps will always be exploited um, by terrorist organizations like Al Shabaab. So I think you know you need uh, Somalians to come together and to you know form a common front uh, against insurgency, but also a common front against those who want to keep the country in a state of instability. So we're going to wind up in a moment. I want to get a, your final comment here. And David, if that mandate uh, uh, by Amisom was not achieved in 15 years, it became open-ended. Can the mandate of Atmis be successfully executed over the next three years? Your answer to that and your final comment. Uh, my answer would be that I need to see it, um, you know, kick off, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, start doing what, you know, um, it stated in its mandate. Um, you know, I think that um, there will be um, a very challenging uh, one for Admis. I don't see any progress um, or any difference in terms of what uh, Admis did to what Admis is going to do. Um, what I'm hoping, uh, as a matter of fact, is that it creates an opportunity for uh, the Somalian uh, National Army and other security agencies uh, to use this opportunity, uh, some kind of a transition to um, self-governance um, or self-protecting you know, uh, the integrity of the entire Somalia. Um, that is what I hope that you know, this will be achieved. And if that is achieved, and if we can see Somalian National Army uh, being independent and running its own affairs, I mean, there is no... Now, um, you know, uh, hard feelings in terms of having support from outside uh, the, the country, but let it be bilateral agreements and let the mandates be clearly stated. I, I hope that uh, ADMIS will uh, bring forth uh, much more uh, an opportunity for the Somalian National Army to uh, take, uh, it, you know, charge of the country, as a matter of fact. Right. Uh, Abdi, what next uh, for Well, we, we are... Well, we are in the middle of elections right now, which is a protracted election. It took uh, more than a year and a half, and it's still ongoing, and it continues to face major problems. Depending on the outcome of these elections, um, our country could actually go in a, in a, a positive and upward trajectory, or if we uh, emerge from these elections, um, uh, you know, it could create uh, uh, bad issues for us. Right. Uh, Marissa, your view on that and your winding up comment. So in the coming, you know, as I say, this is a transition. Oh, okay, the mission is in transition. So in uh, in nine months' time, it will reduce its forces. So why is reducing its forces? And the mood is on exit mood. So with that, uh, with that sentiment, and then as Al Shabaab is also growing, there is a need uh, to, to to focus more more on the political aspect to support the political processes so that Somalia political elites to find a way uh, how they can secure Somalia by themselves and then strengthen Somalia security forces. But from the mission side, uh, I, I don't see uh, in the coming uh, uh, years they will change differently from, the, from previous. All right. And that's all we have time for this week on the program. But thank you to my guest, David Otto Endele, Director on Security for Horn of Africa Institute for Peace and Security Governance. Meressa Desu, Senior Researcher and Training Coordinator at the Institute for Security Studies. And in Nairobi, Abdi Ainte, former advisor to President Farmajo and co-founder of the Heritage Institute. 
Remember, we'd love to hear your feedback through our social media handles on Facebook and Twitter. You can also catch the show on our YouTube playlist. Do keep the conversation going and tune in again next week for more Talk Africa. From ABS's Marshall and the team in Nairobi, it's goodbye. Welcome back, and uh, that was a discussion on the current uh, security and political situation in the Horn of Africa state of Somalia. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. Scott, uh, Are You Lonely For Me, Baby, 
And uh, right now we want to move to another uh, deep discussion on uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, its uh, application to become part of the East African community. Uh, The DRC is a treasure trove in regard to minerals and energy resources, as well as uh, hydroelectric power and agricultural potential. Let's listen in. The Democratic Republic of the Congo has officially joined the East African community, making it the seventh member of the regional bloc. The addition of the DRC to the common market and customs union is considered momentous as it ushers in new opportunities on the social, economic and political realm. But there are also challenges. The EAC is not without its share of problems. Political intrigues and suspicion have previously beset the union and now conflict in the DRC adds on to these challenges. So what does the DRC's membership mean for the EAC bloc? And how will this development impact the lives of people in the region? I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. Well, the DRC's admission to the EAC bloc was officiated at a virtual extraordinary summit of heads of state chaired by Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta. In his speech at the summit, President Kenyatta echoed the desire to create awareness and provide a community with people at the core of integration. Daniel Moy now gives us an overview of how this integration looks like. The East African Community is a regional intergovernmental organization of six partner states, the Republics of Burundi, Kenya, Rwanda, South Sudan, the United Republic of Tanzania, and the Republic of Uganda, with its headquarters in Arusha, Tanzania. The EAC currently has 193 million citizens. DR Congo's admission would raise that number to 280 million people. Now, this large market will be to the benefit of all in the region. The DRC will be able to buy and sell easily to the rest of East Africa for the benefit of its people. Now, DRC comes into the block with a huge market of 90 million people and the potential to contribute to an expanded market and investment opportunities to boost the EEC common market. Now, the country's entry into the regional block also presents a new opportunity for farms as well as member states to diversify their exports within ESC's geographical advantages, natural resources, and global reputation. The community holds huge potential to set the pace for the Africa continental free trade area and lead the continent into a new age trading with the world on an equal and mutually beneficial platform. Well, let's bring in our guests now. And joining us via Zoom from Maryland is Mr. Aloysius Ordu, Director of the Africa Growth Initiative at the Brookings Institution. Kambale Musevuli is a Congolese human rights activist and analyst with the Center for Research on the Congo Kinshasa. He's joining us from Accra in Ghana. And Dr. Mustafa Yusuf Ali is a co-founder and chairman of the Horn International Institute for Strategic Studies. He's joining us from Nairobi. Thank you all for being a part of this discussion. 
Dr. Mustafa, if I may start off with you, DRC has officially become a member of the East African community. What changes immediately for both the DRC and the East African community? Um, the, first of all, um, this is a milestone for the East African community, uh, for the DRC to be joining this uh, uh, community. And one of the major uh, impact immediately is the swelling of the East African community's population by now uh, another 105 million people. So um, this means that the East African community is going to have more than 300 million people, and that in itself is one huge um, a market. The, the second uh, impact here, which is major, is the, is the resources that DRC comes uh, with to East Africa region in terms of high-value minerals, not just any minerals, but high-value uh, minerals, uh, rich farmland, uh, uh, water resources, and the, the, the potential of expanding the power generation in the East African region. DRC brings all these to the East African community, and it's a major, a major milestone for the region. Kambale, for a country that has uh, known a lot of conflict, uh, you know, since independence, is this a milestone for the DRC? Not just for the DRC, for the entire African continent. Uh, but it has to be looked at in two folds. Uh, first fold is what uh, my colleague earlier just mentioned about the economic impact that it has in the region. Uh, but the second fold, which is more uh, the concerns of the Congolese, is how this uh, joining of this uh, community will uh, fundamentally change the condition of the Congolese people. Um, it's a country with uh, a lot of wealth, uh, estimated $24 trillion, which is uh, the United States and Europe GDP combined. Uh, it has no turmoil. It has also known over 6 million deaths due to the conflict in DRC, uh, caused by its neighbors who are members of the Eastern African community, specifically Rwanda and Uganda. So joining it uh, for Congolese, we're looking at it from how is, it, is that going to change the lives of the Congolese? And two, if there will be a mechanism uh, where the people of the Congo being in the community could use the courts uh, in the EAC to uh, solve some of the you know, pending issues, such as the, the International Court of Justice um, ruling that Uganda owes Congo $300 million and all the potential. So those, that's the prism in which... Um, that is looking. But fundamentally, right. this is actually great news right. that uh, Congo is joining the community. Mr. Odu, your thoughts? Thank you. Thank you very much. I fully concur with my brothers in their observations. I see basically four main impacts as a result of this uh, monumental uh, um, uh, announcement of the uh, DRC joining the EAC. The first and foremost is trade, all right? Because the whole reason for an integrated union is really to boost trade with members. Uh, currently, DRC runs a trade deficit with all its members. I'll give you an example. On the export side, the EAC exported $940 million worth of export to the DRC in 2019, and they imported only 894. So trade between the members would really boom. Another angle that the trade will come from is that right now, DRC imports a lot of things from Zambia, 
which is not a member of the ESC. And most of that is food stuff. Right. So I imagine that the Ugandans, the Kenyans, the Rwandese will be positioning to supply DRC with some of those food stuff. So trade is going to be very important. The second is infrastructure development. Because for the first time in the history of the region, you now have the Indian Ocean linking the Atlantic Ocean. So the potential for cross-border uh, railways, for cross-border roads and bridges will be very, very important. And then finally, of course, security. Right now, DRC has been fighting the insurgents on the border with Uganda alone. Now it will be a regional approach to insecurity, which will also benefit everybody in the East African region. Dr. Mustafa, interesting situation being brought out here, the question of security. And Kembale pointed out that, uh, you know, several members in the East African region have been causing disagreements to the DRC. How do you see this playing out, though? Between the DRC, um, unfortunately, even though we expect uh, major uh, uh, um, impacts and consequences in the in the East African community, DRC comes with the tag of uh, the problem child, the problem child, and that tag that DRC comes with uh, might challenge uh, the other countries. Um, for some time before it is fully addressed, there is still huge conflict across large swaths of the uh, territory of the DRC. Uh, 100 uh, uh, different militia groups in the eastern parts of DRC alone, and then the entry of uh, the, the, the Islamic State, um, uh, calling themselves the province of uh, Islamic State of Central Africa, then the ADF, the Allied Democratic Forces, all these and the challenges that Cabo Delgado, Cabo Delgado in Mozambique is facing, um, a, a DRC is a conduit for most of the fighters, the, uh, the extremists and the terrorists. So all these uh, will, will come really to the doorstep of the other East African communities. But however, Beatrice, I want to say this, that the, the, the other countries of East African community right. are not accustomed, or rather, it's not that they are not accustomed to these challenges. Uh, mm. South Sudan is a, is, in a, is, is a deplorable basket case. Mm. Kenya has faced terrorism and has been dealing with these issues. And so, in terms of security, yes, there will be challenges, but these challenges have been there, and it's now up to the leadership in the East African community to deal with this security. Right. right. Kambale, do you feel optimistic, though, that the EAC now has the capacity to stabilize the DRC? I believe it, it has the capacity. It's a political will. You know, uh, the situation in Congo is not a new situation. It's been going on for two decades. We've had success where African nations are engaged. Uh, so let's look at 20, 2012. We, have, uh, we had a rebellion, M23 rebels, supported by Rwanda. They invaded the DRC. Uh, we had a positive impact of a ESC uh, member. The Tanzanian forces were deployed in the DRC. Uh, their special forces came, fought on the ground, and stopped the movement of those rebels. So th this was an African solution to African problems. Uh, so we know that there, that's a, a possibility. Um, but beyond even what the government um, are going to do, because uh, that's my fear in our discussion, because we're talking a lot about trade, um, how will this trade that we are discussing impact the ordinary citizen in Kenya. No, are we just talking about the big businesses trading in the region, being mm. able to get 
some fish from um, the different lakes, so some products. Or we're talking about the ordinary uh, uh, citizen who will be impacted. We have to learn from uh, uh, West Africa, the ECOWAS. What have been some of the challenges that they faced hmm. where people in ECOWAS have complained many times beyond just traveling um, without a visa in the region, uh, normal uh, vendors or no, merchants right. are not able to trade just as similar as the, the big companies. So we have to look at the lessons learned in other regions and make mm. sure that this is not just a macro change, that the ordinary citizens of these regions are able to see that too. Dr. Uh, sorry, Mr. Ordu, your thoughts there though, because the EAC today has uh, 193 million uh, citizens. DRC's admission would raise that to 275 million in the region. How will trade, though, how will, you know, the, the acceptance of the DRC impact regional trade? Sure. That is, uh, thank you very much for that question. I think DRC brings a lot to the region, and the region also brings a lot to the DRC. That's why I would like to reframe the whole notion that um, almost 100 million Africans in the DRC are characterized as the Florentine for EAC. I don't think um, that characterization uh, uh, should be encouraged. Uh, second, it's a huge market. So from the point of view of private sector development, DRC is a humongous opportunity for the Kenyans, the manufacturing basket of East Africa, for the Rwandese who are already making inroads to do more in terms of outreach in the DRC. And of course, Ugandans who have a lot to trade with and uh, also just to give you an example in 2019 kenya exported 120 132 million dollars worth of export to the drc rwanda exported 372 million and congo i mean uh, uganda exported uh, over 270 million dollars to the CIA. so i don't see the drc as a problem child at all on the contrary the one thing to emphasize, though, as um, uh, Kambale and uh, uh, Mustafa will com confirm, DRC is one of the poorest countries in the world. And yet, it is one of the richest on the planet in terms of mineral resources, etc. So the idea now of being part of the integrated uh, East Africa would hopefully help. And that requires four things. One. The, the EAC members, including the EAC, need to build robust institutions. They need to ensure good governance. Good governance has eluded the EAC for years. Infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. They need to focus on building infrastructure, as I mentioned earlier. Kambale, of course, uh, the ordinary people are expecting uh, some change. Mm -hmm. I mean, in uh, you know, Kinshasa, in uh, DRC itself, what changes do you foresee this adding to the ordinary people? First, we also have to put that in a framework. The ordinary people in DRC today are not discussing uh, the joining of DRC uh, into the EAC. That's the reality on the ground. Uh, it's mainly in the political circles mm. and the political elite in the country. Uh, what is in front of the Congolese people is how are they going to have a better life when mm. they're only making a dollar a day? Um, how are they going to be able to pay for uh, the tuition, the, the school fees for the children? How are they be, uh, going to be able uh, to uh, feel safe in the country? Because we're talking about a country joining with 100 million people, but we did not really break down the potential of the Congo. 
Now, with Congo joining uh, the EAC, as I mentioned before, this is actually a good thing from a continental perspective that the African countries have to come. But we must think that the people joining are human mm. beings. Mm. Half of the Congolese population is under the age of 18. We're talking about 50 million Congolese, right? Young people who are a mm. driving force for labor in the heart of Africa and can't completely transform. So mm. if we address the basic needs, I would be interested in seeing Kenyans coming and say, we are, build, we are going to come and build hospitals. Right. Mm -hmm. We are going to provide um, some economic, uh, uh, create economic activity to hire Congolese because mm -hmm. the betterment of their lives and the security and the stability, they, uh, that will completely transform the entire African uh, East African community and the entire African continent. All right, yeah. uh, Kembale Musavuli, uh, Aloysius Ordu, and uh, Dr. Mustafa Ali. We're going to take a short break now and continue with this discussion in a moment. To stay with us. Welcome back to Talk Africa. Eloysius Ordu, Kambale Musavuli and Mustafa Yusuf are still standing by on Zoom to unpack the significance of the DRC's new membership to the East African Community Bloc. Uh, Mr. Ordu, if I may start off with you, the East African Community as a regional economic community is one of the most successful on, on the continent. What is the status first of East African trade? Um, and, you know, what percentages are we likely to be talking about with the admission of the DRC and, you know, some of the barriers that exist to trade? Um, basically, you know, let me first of all endorse everything my brother Kambale said earlier, because I think we often ignore history uh, in this, when we say Congo, you know, DRC, Congo, uh, uh, you know, the current situation it finds itself. The current situation it finds itself obviously has a lot to do with history, as he pointed out. The way the country had been ravaged, and even when the country elected its own prime minister in Patrice Lumumba, the guy was eliminated, right? And then replaced by a stooge, which uh, uh, we know, uh, and then this is where we are today. So, but on your question, I think, as I mentioned, the, the, the trade. East African community was by far the most successful integration scheme on the African continent, by far. And in terms of growth, if you just imagine what happened before COVID, as you know, during the period 2015 to 2019, the East African community consistently grew at 6% and above all the countries in that region, except, of course, war-ravaged South Sudan. So this is what is being embraced, right? The growth potential of that region is going to be even greater in terms of opportunities by bringing in a population of 100 million people in the Congo DRC. As we mentioned earlier, the trade between these two countries, these, the, the new member 
and the, uh, the rest of the community is really where the greatest gains will come from. I talked about infrastructure earlier, with, you know, particularly railway, the potential for railways, the potential for roads. Don't forget air as well, the potential for air. And unleashing all these infrastructural uh, developments would be really beneficial to all the member states of the enlarged community, including the Congo the DRC. But here are three things the EAC must do in order to really reap the benefits of these infrastructural development. First, ideas. Ideas matter. You know, having concrete ideas in terms of the infrastructure development and then converting these projects to bankability is the best way to attract financing along the lines that Kambele mentioned earlier. And trust, very, very important. You cannot buy trust. So trust, credible institutions would be very, very important. And that trust is what will enable the EAC members to address some of the insecurity issues that we talked about earlier. So these are some of the things that I believe that the current leaders, by continuing to meet together, by continuing to integrate, by fostering closer alliances, private sector development, infrastructure development, agricultural development, etc., that's what will enable this whole region to boom. It's a region waiting to boom, basically, which will be to the benefit of uh, the Congo DRC people and everybody in the community. How do you see, though, Dr. Mustafa, how do you see the dynamics of the regional countries? For instance, how is Kinshasa going to relate with Kampala and Kigali going by, you know, the previous accusations that have abounded among the three? I think the leaders in these countries now do not have any excuse to continue uh, with their personal differences. Uh, power tends to be personalized on the African continent, and our leaders tend to take um, very personal uh, 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 issues, and, and again, depends on their personalities. I see some rapprochement between some of these leaders, and that's a good thing, but we need, we need them to be brought together. By the way, uh, um, I think the Kenyan president, Uhuru Kenyatta, has been at the forefront of trying to bring these leaders together in order to address the challenges that they themselves have been facing. And when they address these challenges, uh, personality issues, and uh, challenges between these countries, I think, um, I think and I believe that this region will move forward properly. Right, gentlemen, I want to get your winding down comment. And Kambale, I'll start off with you because looking at the opportunities and the challenges uh, of the DRC joining the EAC and your discussion here, are you optimistic it brings value to the union? <laughs> Not just the union. I will continue to insist that uh, the regional integration is important for the African continent, yeah. uh, for us to be able to grow as a continent and uh, have an impact in the lives of African people. Um, the challenge uh, is tremendous. It can be solved. Uh, quote, my math professor who told me that you could have a square root of a negative number. And I told the teacher that it's a lie. But I said, well, we created an answer. It's square root of <laughs> negative x is uh, i square root of x, right? So they found an impossible solution for an impossible problem. So it's the same with the DRC. But we also have to be a, a little bit sober because it's really important to understand how the Congolese people are really feeling about the situation uh -huh. uh, in the, uh, with uh, EAC. Uh -huh. We want it to succeed. We want the people of the region to 
also enjoy the resources of the Congo is for the African people. Mm. Uh, but we have a very fundamental problem that mm. because of these resources, people are dying. Mm. Uh, I'll use a concrete example. Um, in the town of Kisangani that we mentioned before, this is a town that received 4,000 bombs that was dropped on, in that city. Why was 4,000 bombs dropped in the city? The armies of Rwanda and Uganda fought each other in all the Earth's uh, soil over a diamond mine. There was UN condemnation about this situation, right? And this is one of the cases that we took to the International Court of Justice. And Uganda has been found um, liable, not guilty, and then they have to pay $300 million worth for reparation for those crimes. Why wasn't the, uh, Rwanda found uh, guilty? Because R Rwanda has never signed the Rome Treaty, so the court is outside of its jurisdiction, just as the United States has never signed the Rome Treaty, so you cannot sue the U.S. at the International Court of Justice as well. So joining uh, the ESC for Congolese, especially Congolese human rights activists, we are looking into what are the mechanisms of justice that can be implemented so that the victims of war, so if we have 6 million people who are dying, right. we have at least 6 million family members who are seeking that. As they feel that it's not just people are coming to take resources, that they're actually thinking that we are brothers and sisters and using mechanism of the region, that will help in prospering um, the community. Anything less than that, that's only focused on economic prosperity and not taking the question of justice at the same level, uh, we risk not uh, making the impact that we want to see in the lives of the Congolese or the lives of the people in the region. Mr. Ordu, your thoughts? Very quickly, absolutely agree with Kambele 100%. And just to recap, trust. We cannot address the issues we're talking about here, especially of the insecurity type uh, uh, with the resource extraction that Congo, you know, Congo DRC offers the world, uh, those things would only manifest if we build tremendous trust in the leadership. Second, engaged leadership. It's one thing to be a leader, but to be engaged in a regional approach, in a continental approach under the auspices of the African Continental Free Trade Area to really focus the torchlight attention to what's happening in this region, Congo DRC. That's the way out. Credible institutions. Joining the EAC will enable more institution building within the region. And then if you think of the World Bank's ease of doing business, for example, in terms of reforms, one of the things you find is that countries in EAC have done very, very well in terms of overall economic, social, and uh, uh, other reforms. Rwanda tops the list, uh, Kenya, you know, Uganda and Tanzania are not far behind. Right now, some of the reforms that the DRC is doing is consistent with a greater reform of institutions because you need credible institutions, you need trust, you need engaged leadership. With this, together, the trade will boom and the infrastructure developments, which we talked about earlier, will be unleashed for the greater good of our people in this particular part of Dr. Mustafa, you have the final word. Despite the, the massive challenges uh, that are there in the DR Congo, Beatrice, um, equally lies massive benefits uh, if this is going to be handled well. And uh, uh, I believe that uh, this is going to impact, is going to help, is going to 
work for the young people uh, um, mainly uh, to their benefit. Um, there will be need to resolve the conflicts, outstanding conflicts that have been running for decades, as colleagues mentioned. And it is the African countries, Africa Union, East African community, that should take leadership in dealing and resolving these conflicts. No one from outside will come and address and deal and resolve these conflicts for us. And lastly, institutions, good governance is something that is needed, required by all the countries of the East African community in order to move forward with confidence and help the future generations benefit from this kind of integration efforts. All right, gentlemen, we'll leave it there for today. And that's all we have time for this week on the program. Thank you to our guests for their insightful commentary on this subject. Mr. Aloysius Ordu in Maryland, Director of the Africa Growth Initiative at the Brookings Institution. Kambale Musevuli in Accra, Congolese human rights activist and analyst with the Center for Research on the Congo Kinshasa. And Dr. Mustafa Yusuf Ali in Nairobi, co-founder and chairman of the Horn International Institute for Strategic Studies. Well, now remember you can engage us further on this subject through our social media platforms on Twitter and Facebook and also watch this and more episodes of Talk Africa on our YouTube playlist. See you again next time. I'm Beatrice Marshall. Goodbye. Welcome back. Uh, that was a discussion on uh, the joining of the Democratic Republic of Congo with the East Africa community. We'll take a break. Uh, we'll be back with our concluding segment of the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, April the 10th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit.
uh, made a resolution that was taken by Boxback Municipality to make sure that the 10th of April is always celebrated. All political parties supported the resolution and the resolution was, was taken. All the councillors then were aware that my husband was a member of the ANC and SACP. Therefore, the presence of speakers from both political parties at the commemoration of Chris is not a mistake. My husband was dedicated to the struggle. He worked hard, made life sacrifices with other comrades to make sure that the black people are treated like human beings and budgets are distributed fairly. He fought hard for our people to have access to free education and health, creation of jobs, homes for the homeless, a living wage for the workers, land for the landless, hope for the youth, a life of dignity for the old. We have achieved some of these things, but I must say we still have a lot of work to do. The wages of our people are still extremely low. Not everybody has got access to health, to education. We still have schools in other provinces where children are still studying under the trees. And really after 28 years, I must say, I don't want to say we have failed, but we haven't really done our job. And I appeal to the leadership. I'm glad that Comrade Jeff Hadebe, Linda Demantashe, Comrade Blade, the day to us, you all sit in the cabinet. Oh, sorry, Comrade Jeff, I forgot that you are normal in the cabinet. However, you are still influential. Please, 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 I appeal to those who are in power to make sure that we don't have children studying under trees. We have to make sure that children at school don't use pit toilets. That's all I'm asking for. Not only that. In other provinces, I've seen this several times on TV. I'm not sure if our leaders saw what I saw on TV, because I always see meetings. They might have missed it. What I have observed in most provinces, especially KwaZulu, and I think, okay, Eastern Cape, you'll find that there are two villages divided by a river. The villagers from village A have to cross to village B to get all the services. Now, when it rains, children drown, parents can't get their sasa money, nobody can see the doctor. I strongly feel that this should be made a priority. Unless we have a list of priorities, and the things that I have mentioned in my personal view are priorities, if 
we say our people come first. We must continue to fight for Chris's ideas and what he stood for. That will never die. He was not a man who stood idly by while others suffered. He was a man who literally would give the shirt of his back for another. That kindness and compassion is inside us all, and now more than ever we need to practice it. We don't need to look others in order to know what is right or how to act. This is something we should all seek within. We need to live the way he lived right up to his end. The pain of losing a loved one and the impact is life-changing. We have been told that time heals. Time does not heal anything. It just teaches us how to live with the pain. In conclusion, time passes, but one day goes by that you are not here in my heart. The day you died was not just a date on the calendar. It was a day when my very existence changed forever. I want to acknowledge my granddaughter, Kaya Hani. This is the first time she attends the commemoration. I thank you. Aluta continua. the Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy to come and address to give us the key.
keynote address. Thank you very much. of the program I would be calling a man I can now. <laughs> I represent the state, you know. <laughs> uh, now, program director, thank you very much. Family, all the time, but today you are too held back for my liking. The time that I was up, good is the general sector of the Communist Party, Comrade Blade, Comrade Tulas, Comrade Tesoli, uh, the whole leadership of the party, um, leadership of our entire movement, really. The mayor of Egoruleni, uh, Mayor Campbell. Uh, the right was Mike Campbell. Okay. No, no. You see, when you lose power, you must accept that and uh, uh, just adapt to the fact that you have lost power and uh, acknowledge that you have n you are not in power now. That's it. Uh, all invited guests. It's equal that you can up. You only need food. Um, everybody present here. Yesterday, the president directed me to represent him in this occasion, Austin. So, Abandu must realize that for the duration of this occasion, I'm the president. Now, 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 now. People, people must remember, I was the mayor of Boxbeck, the seat of endless opportunity for three hours. That was all. I was never a mayor again. Three hours, mayor of Boxbeck is in my CV. So for the duration of this occasion, 
I am the president. I am representing the president. Um, <clears throat> to me, that was an honor to be given this task, Austin, for Ubud Chris. Um, because Ngumkulwewam was fatherly to me. I treated like a, a child, almost pulled by hand. The last occasion we were together was in Daviton, a week before his assassination. Shoujong, uh, into his Hindu, says a mother B. Mother B. So, this was an honor to be given this task. And this year, uh, were hosted by the DA, McCampbell, yeah. Um, the DA mayor of the city is honoring us here today. Thank you for that. Uh, we must appreciate that uh, commemorating uh, Chris cuts across political divide. Let me tell you why is that important. Because Chris was accorded freedom of the city, Austin. Is a free man of the city after Mandela. Um, so, Ego Rulin, as the legal successor of the city of Boxburg, extended that freedom of the city to Comrade Chris. So, we're not commemorating Chris because he just stayed in Don Park. We're commemorating because he was the free man of the city. Yeah. Now, uh, and therefore, when we took it in to celebrate his life every year, it is a decision of the city of Egorulin, the legal successor to the city of Boxburg. Boxburg, it was called the city of endless opportunity. Uh, I will tell you the story about that one day. Why is it called the city of endless opportunity. It's one opportunity representing plural. Endless, meaning that there is no beginning or end. And that is not English, it is marketing. <laughs> now, we must also be grateful to the party, the Communist Party, uh, with the family. That was simple. For actually insisted on keeping the flame burning. You know, most, uh, some of us commemorate one, two, three years and we stayed. Uh, I was saying to Comrade Jenny, the fire has come to go. You know, when the fire comes to go, the party keeps that flame burning and we must be grateful to them. Uh, and this keeps our conscience alive that uh, the freedom we are enjoying was never free. Uh, some individuals, some families, including the Ani family, had to pay the ultimate price. Comrade Kriv gave up his life. I'm sure Aus Dimpo one day will take it in to write a book. Uh, and how this man was always feared by the apartheid regime and the most prominent reason for the fear for Chris was that he was a communist.
people staff of the MK and all that, all that, but mainly because it was a communist that instilled fear because people were educated from young life that communists have horns and therefore never come close to these people, they are dangerous lot and therefore they always feared Christ. Attempts on his life warrants a book house temple in Lesotho. Yeah? And people who died on his behalf because the regime wanted to eliminate him. Ultimately, they did here 29 years ago. Today, we are taking that freedom for granted. We put our self interest above the movement. One of the issues that we are always told to, to, to do. Uh, yeah, you are putting things ahead of the country. No, we are not putting things ahead of the country. We are putting the ANC as a vehicle that has carried us to, re to liberate the country. Therefore, it can't be an ANC ahead of the country. The ANC was the vehicle that was used to liberate the country from apartheid. And we can't ignore that and just close our eyes and pretend as if nothing has happened. Um, we contest and fight for selfish reasons instead of remembering why the ANC. Now, we are making wrong choices. You know, we don't Maxwell up. Oh, but what is this? But we don't know that always intrigued me. Where he reminds all of us that choices. Uh, is a success. A choice you make is success. It, it, any success, any failure depends on the choice you make. If you make wrong choices, you are going to collapse. If you make correct choices, you are going to continue succeeding. You know, Austin, when you talk of bridges in the Eastern Cape, uh, I'm sure when Comrade Blake speaks, he is going to tell us that there is a program that we just adopted of 95 bridges a year. 95 bridges a year. It's a program of the state. We've adopted it. Will we execute it? It's a different matter. But we've resolved that we'll build 95 bridges every year. And the reason for that is simple. We looked at the conditions, particularly in the rural areas, and discovered that it, yes, this is life. Uh, and 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 therefore the choices we are making are going to make us succeed or collapse. <laughs> the consequence of this is the embodiment of the the embodiment of the right wing. The right wing is is emboldened. You know they smell blood. They think that come 2024 will overthrow the ANC. They will not govern anymore. And that emboldenment of the right wing to overthrow the ANC is actually our own making. I'm going to get into details about that. And it is actually a push for reversing all the transformational gains we've made. All of a sudden, we must not remember that in 1994, Mayor Campbell wouldn't be a mayor. Mayor Campbell, 
Soon, 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 we must forget that all of a sudden. We must forget that in 1994, every head of government in the state was a white male. Every mayor of a city was a white male. Every municipal manager was a white male. All of a sudden we must remember, forget that and say, it never happened, time is gone. Uh, and in so doing, we are trapped as beneficiaries of change uh, to forget and need to be reminded. Uh, uh, sorry, when I talk to minors, I'm a, mind, I'm a mind worker myself. Um, I'm in that portfolio now. I tell them that the Nationalist Party was in power for 40 years. It never produced a single African RCO in 40 years. Not one. In mining. Everywhere else there were some and many others and others. But in mining, there was never a single African RCO in 40 years. Now I'm putting change in, into context. Um, we are in office under 30 years. I can tell you three major mining companies are having female CEOs. Female. Two black, one Afrikaner. Mm. Mm. So, after 131 years, the, the Mineral Council of the Old Chamber of Mines is having a female president. Black female president. After 131 years. Now, this is what must be reversed. This is what must be reversed. This is what we must actually remind ourselves that, listen, if we're reckless, it is going to be reversed. Therefore, we talk to our recklessness. Uh, we can quantify the progress made that is being reversed. We are taken back to apartheid theory of black leadership equal to mediocrity. Bumnyama, we mediocre for the sake of being black, and therefore, the question of black excellence is a myth. We must believe that, that blacks can't be excellent, they can't be competent, um, but we are called upon to own up. Don't, don't blame somebody else for the mistake we commit. We must not do that. We must not do that. Comrade uh, Mbeki made a statement that yeah, uh, the outcome of the local government in November reflected e resurgence of the right wing and the collapse of the left wing. I said no. That's not true. I reminded them the NC collapsed twenty uh, under under fifty. But the J collapsed by 5.6%. Eh? People don't remember that. 
in Cape Town, they lost 15 seats <laughs> in Cape Town. So it cannot be the resurgence of right and collapse of the left. It is the fragmentation of the left. That's the reality of the matter. And the duty we're having is to go back and say, what is it that we must own? What mistakes have we committed? Uh, but let me give you a few a few enemies of progress. One is that if you plant wind, you harvest well wind. Yeah. If you plant wind, you harvest well wind. How yala moya that's it. Now, uh, what we are seeing is the whirlwind that we are harvesting. We must attend to it. Let me give you a few. We must appreciate the fact that one of our biggest enemies is ego. Ego. You know ego, when the ego fills the room, there's no space to breathe and think. Ego is so big. And the ego manifests in few ways. Manifests in few ways. One is selfishness. Put in the aim. It's not us. Me, 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 me. Quite a montage. Quite a montage. Me, me, me. Two is arrogance. Look down upon everybody else. You are bigger than yourself. Is destructive engagement. When you engage people, you don't extract ideas. You seek to destroy the next person and win the argument. That's destructive. It is being stuck in your head and refuse to engage with the world around you. That is the ego. And accept that this is reality. Now, Campbell, I'm talking to the fact that I have a responsibility to internalize that you are the mayor here. Okay. Um, I don't have your number. <laughs> I have property here. From time to time, electricity gets switched off in my property. Now, I must want to say, why is light switched off in my property? Only one person stays there. One person stays there. Why is the electricity 20,000 rand? I must have that number. Now, it is dealing with imaginary audience, Plate. Eh? Audience, thank you. We are imaginary audience, Tilangai. And that deprives you of the ability to think and to lead. 
Now, that is what we should own up. Now, I'm talking to myself as the leader of the ANC solely. The ANC that was led by Chris, this ANC that governs in alliance with the Communist Party and COSATU, okay? And it is us that sow the wind and harvest the whirlwind. One other enemy is something I call self-deception, where you deceive yourself. You, know? um, you stay in your own world. You're in your own world, you know. You are an enemy from within yourself. Hmm. You remain in a box and absolute about your views. Toikingayo is everything and nobody else must throw you ideas. Um, those who disagree with you concretely, you come to me, you say, I disagree with you, you put your own reasons. Instead of engaging you, I label you the enemy. Close. And the organization is not muttering. It is you who matters. Reality in your face is ignored in favor of narrow interests. Reality is in your face. Let me move towards concluding by reminding all of us, all of us, that leadership is about messaging. There is power in what you say, there is power in what not to say. Pagut Pungan, Paikal. We are all the time with young man. So that I know I'm doing illiziliadala. Eh? Unga teti no ba indoni illiziliadala. Anything you say, you are creating. That is the power of messaging. Now, we must uh, have a discussion about how to overcome this. Now, we are coming out of COVID. I'm saying out because I think we're in a stage where we live with COVID. Okay. We live with it. So, uh, it's no longer a pandemic. It's an endemic. <laughs> it is not pandemic. It is endemic. Icon. <laughs> And I survived it twice. Okay. Shared determination, Austin. Shared determination. I'm not dying. Here am I. I go to hospital. I stay there for 10 days. The doctors say, this thing has attacked your lungs 60%. But I say, no, I must not die. Here am I. 
So, it has had a serious impact on society. There are many things that we have learned out of that process. We are sanitizing, social distancing, we are wearing masks. As you see, we are going to do them beyond COVID. Good lessons we must retain. The economy was shattered. Ukomrit Blade, everyone, Uran Dogay Education and Technology. No research means. So Now, in the middle of a lockdown sold, I took a decision with the sector. Did you go? At level five, coal mines must produce at full capacity. Is it? level four. Did at level four all open cars must produce at full capacity? Yeah? At level two, all mines must produce at full capacity. Now, people, including blaze scientists, say to me, you are going to kill the mine workers. And I say to him, but blade, the easiest way to kill them is to starve them to death. That's the easiest way of killing them. You just starve them to death, open up. You know when there was recovery, complete blade? Mining led that, that, that recovery. And almost of today, it is mining that saves the fiscus. So, so taking decision, taking risk, dealing with the risk instead of being waiting for consequences. That's it. The last issue. I want to leave this to Comrade Blade the terror sector of the Communist Party in the next session of the program, the Russian-Ukraine conflict. Many want us to say it's an attack of Russia, an invasion of Russia into Ukraine. I say no. It is the provocation of NATO that wanted to squeeze Russia into a corner and Russia kicked the dust. It's like anybody. If you are cornered, you know my mama, my mother taught me something basic. You know, if you are beating up a cat in a hut, you close every exit. You are going to lose your eye. Because the only bright spot in the dark hut is your eye. And the cat will go for your eye. That is what has happened in Russia. That is what happened. But the reality of the matter is that in the impact on us, and some people are saying it's bad impact, I say it is both good and bad. The bad is that the price of uh, petroleum products is up to the roof. We try to give a relief. It's not sufficient, but fine, let's try it for, in the short term. You see what will happen after two months. But our commodities, as a miner, are ripping the bonus. Prices are up, price of coal up, price of every commodity up. That is what we should take advantage of. I want to leave it at that. And the rest of the political content, I'm leaving to you, Comrade Blade. Eh? I'm leaving it to you. I'm just talking about impact of a conflict 
Sometimes people say it's far from us. In a world as small as ours, there's nothing that is far from us. Everything is with us. Uh, I'm honored to be here. Thank you very much. I hope COVID gives us madness overcome his shortcomings in Tetangas. I'm that's the only thing we agree with Christians is that a human being doesn't die but the only difference is what happens when he's not dead now lives in eternal life and so forth and so forth in our case he communicates with us and Christ must communicate with us and help us recover, overcome the weakness. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Uh, now I'd like to call uh, the MMC of Health and Social Development, Councillor Wakang Litoko, to do a vote of thanks before I hand over to Okombre Tulas Nesi. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Program Director. I was asked to do the vote of thanks, and the truth is that there is so much to be grateful for today. As much as we are grateful to the many dignitaries and officials who have made this special occasion, and here I thank Program Director and Speaker of Council, Councillor Raymond Tlamini, Ministers present today, Minister Leighton Zimande, Minister Tulas Ngwesi, 
Gauteng Premier David Makura in absentia, the Speaker of Gauteng Legislature, Menton Bimekwe, and the Provincial Leadership in attendance. MMCs and Councillors in attendance, Reverend, Mapa, Reverend Mapatwe, Minister Gwede Mantashe for his keynote address, Executive Mayor Alderman Tanya Campbell for welcoming us to our beloved city that has changed so much since the 10th of April 1993. Mama Dimpohani and her family for faithfully continuing to honor the memory of her husband. The Ngobi family and all political leadership in attendance. But honestly, most of all, I want to thank all those who offered the ultimate sacrifice so that a woman like myself could stand here today as a member of the city's mayoral committee and reflect on how far we have come. The assassination <laughs> the, assassin, the assassin, assassination of Chris Hani was the ultimate fi final turning point towards our democracy. To the many South African patriots who, who will take us into the future, I also want to thank you. We still have so much work to do to create the kind of South Africa that is worthy of the great sacrifices of our heroes. Kritani has given us the opportunity to bring in the next generation of world-changing leaders. Let us keep working towards making that difference. Lastly, I would also like to thank the organizing committee for all the arrangements that went into today and working tirelessly behind the scenes to ensure that today is the dignified and memorable event that it is. Ladies and gentlemen, as I conclude, I thank you all for honoring us with your presence today. Thank you. Is it? Amanda! Amanda! Long live the spirit of Comrade Krizani, long live! Long live the spirit of Joe Slovo, long live! Long live the spirit of O.R. Tambo, long live! Long live the spirit of Kholisasa Mandela, long live! Amanda! Hiva Mulele Ganja, no Krizani! Hevam zumile uchonyana. Hevam bulele ganjan uchonyan uchon. Hevam zumile uchonyan. Bitena ngatani bamba anganji.
Thank you, comrades. Thank you, comrades. Thank you, comrades. Let me greet Auslimpo and the Hani family. The Nkobi family, which is with us here. Ntatemurut, Ntatemapat. The General Secretary of the SACP. Comrade played in the Monday with Comrade Solima Paila, Comrade Joyce, together with the provincial leadership, which is led by Comrade Jacob Mamabulo and Comrade Jompis. The national chairperson of the ANC, Comrade Gwede Mantash, who was also here as the government representative and representing the president, not a president, but he is representing the president. The National Executive Committee member, the leader of the ANC, Comrade Jeff Khatev, and all ANC structures in Egurulin, which are led by the chairperson of Egurulin, who is the former mayor, Comrade Tim Zondile Masina, and all the leaders in the region, the COSATU leadership, which is here in the various affiliates, which are led today by the first vice president, Comrade Mike Singange, who is also the president of Nehau. Let me recognize the mayor of the city, who has hosted us today of Uiguruling, uh, Mayor Campbell, the councillors, the officials who are here, who are led by the MM, and all the dignitaries and comrades who have gathered here today. Comrades, on this day, 29 years ago, a political assassin brutally murdered one of the most loved revolutionaries or revolutionary sons of our movement and of our country. It nearly led to the bloodshed. It nearly deferred the freedom. But the vision of the leadership of the movement was able to stop that because of the anger. But the question still remains Whilst we are talking about Janus Walus, we still need to know the hand behind. Maybe the speakers who are going to be here are also going to reflect on this matter. Tatemapata, Comrade Chris Hani, said he was fighting as a communist. And he said, no, communism is not complex. It's not sophisticated complex, I mean, uh, concepts. But he said, it's the fight for the, the poor and the working class. And they are fighting for the basic needs. 
housing for all, food security, water and sanitation, basic health, education and training, proper roads, accessible and cheap transport, land for all. That's what he said. So there is a coming together between those who are fighting for justice as Christians and the communists. And we have a lot of communists today who are also Christians. So as I raise these issues, Comrade Blade Zimande, Comrade Jeff Khadeb, how far are we for what Chris Hani was fighting for? These masses who are unemployed, when we're talking about jobs for all, they are asking questions, how far are we in terms of the basic needs? Our program is very simple today, comrades. I have only three speakers. All others will give the messages of support. The COSATU representative, the ANC representative, and the main speaker is the general secretary of the SACP. I will start then a program. Then I allow you, comrades, in between. Comrade, uh, the first Vice President of COSATU, you must take the floor and give us the message. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, excerpts uh, from a commemoration held earlier today in the Republic of South Africa to uh, acknowledge the 29th anniversary of the assassination of uh, former uh, South African Communist Party, uh, African National Congress, uh, military wing, Mkonto Wesiswe commander, uh, Chris Hani, uh, who was uh, killed in an assassination conspiracy 29 years ago today on April 10th of 1993. And that's going to conclude uh, the program for today. We want to remind our listeners that if you want to have access uh, to this program uh, for today, Sunday, April 10th, uh, 2022, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the sound of John Coltrane and Duke Ellington uh, from a series of recordings uh, during the early 1960s. Let's listen in.
With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.